you open up your Bible, please, to the epistle of James. As we've been talking, we have been going through the epistle of James. I will tell you from my own personal study what an amazing blessing this is. Um, I'm just going to read for you at first uh, James 1 through 12. Read along with me in your Bibles. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one, to, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, uh, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But let the brother of the humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Amen. And bless God for his word. And Father, we come to you, Lord God, and we humble ourselves before the word of God. Let us always remember that this is your word. And so, Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit of God has to say. We ask you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Last week, we learned that God does have a purpose in trial, in allowing his children to go through trials. And while God is at work in the believer's life with specific purposes, James has shown us that God is producing in the believer godly perseverance, godly perfection, and godly perspective. Godly perseverance builds spiritual endurance. Godly perfection yields spiritual completeness and wholeness in the believer. And godly perspective in trials, of trials, is found by those who ask the Lord for wisdom. God is ever working in his children, doing a work of sanctification, setting the believer apart, making them holy in Christ. And this week we're going to pick up on verses 6 through 8, 6 through 8, and we're going to examine the role of faith in trials. Understanding faith is fundamental when you approach this epistle 
of James. In chapter 1, right at the very beginning, James begins with faith in trials. He's going to deal with the issue of faith in trials. In chapter 2, James discusses faith in the believer's life as evidenced in good works, as evidenced in fruit. And in James chapter 5, James addresses the issue of faith concerning prayer within the church and answer to prayer. So understanding faith is going to be key, and we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive of that today. Now I want to share something. The first week when we went through this, I said when we talk about trials, that we're really standing on holy ground, right? I think each and every one of us, to a degree, goes through or is going through a particular trial. Your trial may not be a trial for me. My trial may not be a trial for you. However, God uses all of this for the furtherance. And so I want again, just preface, I want to say this, prefacing this. I truly believe it is holy ground. And I don't want anybody to read into this as if these are simplistic answers to life's difficult problems that we seem to encounter. But I will say this. Because this is the infallible, inerrant word of God, the principles here are true. And so today as we discuss faith, It applies to you whether you're in a trial that is of a financial nature or you're in a trial that may be of a health nature or anything far beyond that. The principle still applies. And that's what I want us to see. So I don't want anybody to think that, you know, hey, this is a broad brush kind of approach. The Word of God is true. Let us have ears to hear what the Word of God says. And that's it. Living faith, biblical faith, right, is that faith that brings us unto salvation. Living faith is that faith that is enabled within the believer through the Holy Spirit to overcome life's adversities, right? And so we're going to take a look at this, and we're going to see why James was writing this, particularly to a group of persecuted Christians. I want you to understand that. He's not writing this uh, like to a group of of, uh, churchgoers in America. These are persecuted Jews, those that have left the synagogue, those that were excommunicated in their communities, those that were being persecuted by the Jewish element, those that were being persecuted by the pagan element around it, and eventually those that are going to be persecuted by the Roman government. These are people who the corners are pressing in, and they are being squeezed. And I want you to keep that in the center of your mind because if you do, you'll understand how the Word of God is speaking to these people, right? right? And how the Word of God can speak to us. James instructs those that when going through a trial in chapter 5, if any of you lack wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom within the trial, If any of you don't understand why is it going on, ask of God. And as we said last week, he he states, let him ask of God. He gives to all men generously 
and without reproach. And I shared with you last work that generous means it's being poured out liberally. If you ask of God, he'll pour it out liberally. He'll give you understanding. He'll give you clarity for the trial. He's going to give it. And the other word there is without reproach, meaning God is never going to come back to you and say, you unworthy person, you sinner, you failed so many times. No, God is not going to come with reproach upon you. How great is that? There's so many times when we encounter a particular trial that we run to everybody except the Lord and to ask the Lord. And so James tells these persecuted, listen, go to the Lord. Ask of God. Ask Him and come to the Lord. And we come to verse 6 here. And we're going to look at verses 6 and 8. I've titled this message, The Testimony of Faith in Trials. And today we're going to define, number one, what faith is. Number two, what faith is not. And number three, the danger of being double-minded, of being a double-minded man. So let's look at verse six and let's, let's encounter the first element. What is faith? Look at verse six. But let him, speaking of the person who is asking God, right, for wisdom, but let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Now, when we started this study, I said the book of James is not overly theological. It is more practical in its approach. It's it's providing practical Christianity, practical faith. This is the blocking and the tackling aspects of our faith. And James begins, he reminds believers that the key to asking God for wisdom in trial is asking God in faith. So what is meant by faith? What does he mean, asking by faith? Faith is being fully persuaded, trusting, and fully convinced regarding God's plan and purpose and the person of God. In other words, to put it simply, you are totally convinced that God has not released you, that God has not let you go into the wild. You are convinced that God has a plan and a purpose, and you trust completely in the person of God. Faith is not telling God what to do. It's not psyching yourself up like the little engine that could, I believe I can, I believe I can, therefore I can. That's not faith. Faith is not disputing with God why he allowed a certain thing to happen or why you cannot find the way out. Faith does not involve self-pity or self-loathing. In other words, you're thinking, oh, I'm not worthy to receive anything good. This is good that this happens to me. That's not faith either. It's not acquiescing. And just say, oh, what could you do? It is what it is, right? E.W. Tozer puts it this way. I like the way he says it. To the child of God, there's no such thing as an accident. He travels, meaning the child of God, he travels on the appointed way. The path he tread was chosen for him when he was, when, when as yet he was not, and when as yet He had existence only in the mind of God. 
In verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8, James contrasts faith with doubting. And to encourage the believers to persevere through trials and to trust God's perfect work in our lives. Now, if you're in a trial right now, whatever it is, that's the place we must begin. We must begin with entrusting ourselves, number one, to the sovereignty of God. Entrusting ourselves to God's plan, God's perfect purpose, and God's person, His character. Those three elements we have to entrust ourselves to. So to better understand faith, we should look at what the writer of Hebrews had to say regarding faith at the very famous beginning of the 11th chapter of Hebrew, the Hall of Faith. So turn over real quick to Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verse 1. And this is probably, if you've been a Christian for a few years, this is not a silver bullet that's coming in. You're going to go, oh yeah, I know this verse. The writer of Hebrews says this about faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The King James Version says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith in Christ comprises two essential facts. Fact one, assurance. Fact two, conviction. Faith is comprised of both of those. And he says the first one. First, it is the insurance of things hoped for. That word assurance is the Greek word hypotasis, and it basically means confidence. You have a confidence. It's, it's a confidence. It's an assurance in a reality, right? So it's not wishful thinking. You're not hoping it's not like most people say, gee, I hope today is going to be a good day. That's just wishful thinking. Yeah. This assurance that Paul, uh, that the writer of Hebrews talks about here is a confidence in a reality. It's a reality. It is a truth. This is a reality. This is a speaker. This is a reality. It is here. I could see it. I could touch it. I could look at it. This pulpit is a reality. Right? It is wood comprised into a pulpit. This, I can be assured, if somebody were to say, what is this? I could say, this is a pulpit, and this is what a pulpit looks like. And I could touch it, and I can feel it, and I can have that assurance. So it is with God. To the believer in God, the believer in God has that assurance. God has become that reality. How does God become that reality? God becomes that reality by the transformation of the believer. Whereas once we may have had a concept of God, the believer now experiences the person of God. And that person of God becomes as real as anything else. And we come into the personhood of God. And we experience the personhood of God. And we experience the Holy Spirit. So we see here, this this word assurance carries with it the idea that you're standing underneath an agreement. 
You're standing underneath an illegal agreement. It's, it's guaranteeing. It's what's guaranteed to a person. You know, it's like, um, it's like, it's like contractually bound. It's not something you hope for. It's something that you have because you're standing under an, an agreement. For the believer, assurance, it's the title of possession. It's the Lord's guarantee to fulfill the faith he has in birth in you. So the first part of that faith, that assurance, is that guarantee from the Lord. The Lord who birthed this in you will bring it about. He will fulfill it. And I think that's just a beautiful thing. But the writer of Hebrews goes a little bit deeper in defining faith. He also says it is the conviction of things not seen. And that word conviction speaks of an inner conviction. It's an inner conviction. And it focuses in on God confirming that inner work in the believer's life. Think of it as as internal persuasion. We are persuaded, but that persuasion is not merely of the intellect. That persuasion is deep inside. So what is biblical faith? It's an assurance, the Lord's guarantee to fulfill the faith he births in the believer, and a conviction, God persuading the believer of that faith. That's biblical faith, right? This is the faith of Abraham. Where in Romans 4.20, Paul states, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, right? But grew strong in faith. Yet to the promise of God. Abraham, earlier in that chapter, says he looks all around. He considers his own body as good as dead and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, although he saw everything around him testifying negatively. Says earlier, and I think verse 18 in Romans 4, in hope against hope he believed. The whole world testified negatively. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong, giving glory to God. As a matter of fact, Romans 4.21 says this, and being fully assured, there it is, the assurance, being fully assured that what he had promised, speaking of God, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Think about Abraham for a moment, right? Abraham's 99 years old when he finally has his son Isaac, right? Now, you know, he was a younger man when God said, hey, look at the stars of the heavens, so your descendants are going to be. Look at the sands of the sea, that's where your descendants are going to be. Just imagine, he was older, and then it's 60, 70, 80, 90, and, you, you know, you're thinking... All right, this ship is sailed now, right? There's, there's, there's no chance of this happening. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he believed. Isaac is born. Isaac grows up to be a teenager. 
And the Lord appears. The Lord who had given them so much encouragement. The Lord who had given them so many promises. And what did He say? Take your son, go up to Mount Moriah, and I want you to offer your son. Genesis 22. The Bible says that Abraham packed up everything he needed for the offering, took his son, took some servants, Went to Mount Moriah. By the way, you know that's where the Temple Mount is today. The Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem is Mount Moriah. It's believed that's where that sacrifice took place. And Abraham tells his servants, hey, you guys stay here. Me and the boy are going to go up there and we're going we're to build the altar of God. And we're going to worship God. And they go up there and they bring the wood and Isaac's kind of swift. He's going, hey, Father, I see the wood. I, I see everything here for the altar. Where is the lamb? Remember those famous words from Abraham, God himself will provide the lamb. I wish I had time to process this because there's some real beauty in this. But anyway, he prepares. He puts his son on the altar and he takes that knife of flint and he's going to do it. And the angel stays his hand. He says, Abraham, don't do this. You know, God was basically, he says, God was testing you, right? There's the ram in the thicket sacrifice him, he comes down. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver. And the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham believed God to such a degree that he believed somehow, way, God would be able to give life to the dead and bring him back. That's faith. The assurance. Standing underneath God's guarantee, the conviction, the inner persuasion by God that in this circumstance, God has a plan and a purpose for all things. James speaks about this, and this is why the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11.6 says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. And I love the way that King James says it. Of those who diligently seek him. He who comes to God must believe that he is, must be fully persuaded in the person and in the character and in the plan and in the sovereignty of God. He must believe who he is and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is faith that pleases God. Faith causes one to believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. It is steadfast belief in in God steadfast belief in God it is steadfast belief in God his purpose his presence his sovereignty in one's life and circumstances faith floods the heart to enable one to trust in the person and in the plan of God 
Faith takes God at his word. Faith is not wavering in purpose or in intent. And we see faith, and this is a a good thing. We see faith here, and what it does is it engages the intellect, it engages the mind, Mm -hmm. and it engages the person's will. And while saving faith is a gift given by God, active faith, living faith in Christ, is working out that faith in your life. Is believing God and taking God at its word. It is volitional, meaning it does involve your will. And that's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11.6 says, For he who comes to God must believe must believe faith engages the intellect faith engages the will and living and active faith engages God at his word and steps out in faith with God it is in trials that believers believers must actively 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 believe God where is it here? In, uh, if you look, go back to James chapter 1, if you look at verse 2, I want to just bring something to your attention. James 1, 2. James says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word for encounter there in the Greek, it's an interesting word. It means to stumble. It means to fall. So, So just think about it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you stumble into, when you fall into a trial. The imagery given there is this isn't something that is planned. It's not something that you're marching into. It is something that happens out of the clear blue. Boom, you stumble into a fall. And James says, consider it all joy, my brethren. And he says that, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, spiritual endurance, spiritual perseverance, the ability to go on with God despite the circumstances. Well, what is the enablement of that? What is is the power that comes through that? Well, the enablement of that is what? It's faith. It's faith that gives you that ability to continue to go forward. So we must come to God assured that the Lord will fulfill what He says, convicted that God is whom He says He is and will do what He says He will do. Which means faith is a matter of the heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. I, I love this simple statement. The Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or intellect. It is a condition of the heart. Biblical in faith engages the mind, harnesses the will, and is revealed in holding to God and His promises. We saw what faith is. What faith is not. And James tells us here, 
Faith is not doubting. The opposite of faith is doubting and unbelief. James states that we must come to God without doubting. Doubting refers to, that, that word refers to being at variance with oneself. That's what doubting means. You're, you're at variance with oneself. You're hesitating. You have a, 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 a double mind. Doubting, I like to say, is unbelief manifest. Doubting is unbelief manifest. It doesn't have to mean broad-based unbelief like you deny the existence of God, but it could be unbelief that you can accept God and His Word at a particular time. The Bible tells us, James tells us, that God answers the prayer of the righteous, the faithful, not the prayer of the doubting. James says that we must not come to God doubting. So the question is, doubting what? Doubting what? And obviously the answer is doubting the person, the plan, and the purpose of God. Doubting that God is for us and not against us. Doubting God's good purposes in our lives. Doubting God's desire to see us through the trial. As I mentioned before, the writer of Hebrews there, he makes it very clear. For he who comes to God must believe that what? That he is. He must believe in the person of God. That he is. And his character is part of the personhood of God. Look at verse 6, the second half of verse 6 there in James 1.6. James says this, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Doubting is instability in faith. Instability in faith. It's waffling in unbelief. Waffling in unbelief. Unstable in hope. Weighed down with fear. Right? Doubt, the, the technical, defini- technical definition for doubt there is to hesitate, to waver, thoroughly going back and forth. You're going back and forth. And literally, it means judging back and forth. You can't, you're indecisive. You can't make a decision. You're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Ultimately, doubting unbelief is a lack of trust in the character of God. As a result, the circumstances of the trial will always appear to be more significant than God's ability to bring about good in such a situation. Listen, Jesus spoke about doubting several times here in one passage here, Matthew 21, 21. What's going on in this scene? Well, they cursed the fig tree. and Now they're heading back and they go, oh my goodness, look, you cursed the fig tree and it's cursed. And Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 21, 21, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast in the sea, it shall happen. Now, we've known of great men of faith, haven't we not? I don't know of any man of faith that ever cause the mountain to be cast in the sea. I know this is used a lot of word of faith preachers that anything you want, you just believe it, you got it. 
But this is a clear example of Jesus using hyperbole. Right? He's, he, he's using an exaggerated point here. But what's, what's the significance? The significance, Jesus said, if you believe and don't doubt, Amen. that unlocks unlimited yes. potential in your life of faith. One of the more famous accounts, and one that really resonates with me as an individual, um, comes from Mark's Gospel. And this is the story of the father of the son who was possessed by a demon who goes to Jesus. Just turn there real quick to Mark chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. You might recall that this man comes to Jesus and he first went to his disciples and and said, hey, my son's possessed by a demon and the disciples couldn't cast it out. So he goes to Jesus And note the exchange of Jesus as recorded in Mark's Gospel. And in verse 22, we pick up with the Father's request to Jesus. Mark 9, 22, speaking of his son. And it is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and began saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. That that is commonly quoted many times, right? We tend to say it. I have prayed it, Lord, many times. Now, it could be said that the father had a measure of faith by going to Jesus for help. But we must distinguish a little bit between the biblical faith and desperation. We hear the desperations in the Father's voice when he states, but if you can. He had already gone to the disciples. They had failed. He sees Jesus coming and he goes to Jesus and he says, help my son, help my son. Now listen, I relate to this. Anybody who's a parent relates to this and you pray for your child in a situation. Help my son, help my son. But he comes with desperation and he says to Jesus, hey, if you can. And I want you to notice the response of Christ. Notice the response of Christ. Jesus responds and says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. This is the encouragement of faith that Jesus gives them. It's not a rebuke. He doesn't say, like he said to the disciples many times, O ye of little faith, how long will I continue to tolerate with you? He gives them an encouragement. He says, if you can, which is really saying, if I can. Do you know who I am? If I can. All things are possible to him that believe. Listen, even in a trial, even though the whole world may be testifying against you, even though the walls have fallen down, even though you may have friends around you like Job's friend, who you know, Job's wife, just curse God and die. 
even if it appears that everything else has failed, all things are possible to him who believes. What does that say? That says, I trust in the character of God. I trust in the character of a God who says he is working all things for good for those who love him. Even though we may not comprehend that truth, we may be in a trial and we may be saying, how is this possible, Lord? How is this going to be used for good, Father? I'm broken. I'm destroyed. The walls are falling down. The enemy's all about how God can this be used for good? Listen, there's a moment in a trial, as I said in James 1, 2, right when James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And I said, that means you stumble into, you fall into. Well, when you stumble into that trial, when you fall into that trial, there are times when the trial comes and the shock and the devastation and everything else is so overwhelming. You're overwhelmed by it. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Why is this going on? Those questions come. And let me be absolutely clear. That's, that does not constitute a lack of faith. That's just human life. Yes, sir. Right? You, you're perplexed. You're taken by surprise. You stumbled into something that you didn't expect to happen. But then what happens? Then there comes an anchor for the soul. Then the person of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, the character of God, the Word of God begins to emerge and grab anchor to your soul. It doesn't mean that although you're being anchored, it doesn't mean that you don't feel pain. It doesn't mean that the pain isn't so overwhelming, but what it does mean is that God grabs, God stabilizes, God reveals that in-birthing assurance and that inner conviction of faith, and God holds, and God stabilizes. And therein lies the character of God, the God who will work all things together for good for those who love Him, the God who holds us, the God who says, though you walk through the fire, you will not be singed. Though you walk through the raging water, it will not overcome you. Though you walk through the sea, you're not going to drown. It is the God who holds. It is the God who says, though youths grow weary and tired, yet they who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings of eagle. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk in not faint. That is a guarantee. God is the anchor of the soul. And in the trial, he emerges, whereby you find yourself holding to the plan and you find yourself holding to the purpose of God. You're holding, you're trusting. The, why do we spend so much time in this word? Because there's nothing I could tell you that can encourage you or that can stir your soul. It is only the word of God, living, active, Sharper than a two-edged sword. Dividing between the bone and the marrow. It is the word of God whereby God speaks and grabs hold of you. And you may be trembling. 
You may be hanging by your fingernails. You may be struggling beyond all struggle, but God secures us. And he becomes that anchor. Listen, doubt won't do that. Doubt won't do that. Doubt, James states, doubt's going to toss you back and forth. Back and forth. It's like being at the surf. You go in, you go out. You go in, you go out. You go up, you go down. The wind will drive you. You'll have no anchor. No stability. And the result of your trial can be worse than it has to be. And that is precisely James' point. Look at verse 7. The danger of being double-minded. Look at verses 7 and 8. James writes, For let not that man... What man? The doubting man that he spoke about. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Doubt and unbelief produce someone whose lack of faith in God is revealed in times of pressure or times of trial. Usually this is evident in that they will resort to the ways and the advice of the world rather than the Word of God. Remember when we studied the parable of the sower on Tuesday night? That the Lord sowed some seed on rocky ground. And that seed, immediately when it was received, sprung up and produced fruit. Right? It began to bud. It started to look like it was healthy. It started to look like it was good. But it had no root because under the soil lay hard rock. And what did Jesus say? When the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches came in, it choked the word and it withered away. That's fundamental unbelief. Many are religious in appearance when all is going well, but the true believers, boy, they're the ones that are holding fast to Christ. And there are many in the world that will say, the double-minded person that will say, listen, I know what the Bible says, but let's get real with this situation. In other words, let's, let's, this is reality now. This isn't church. This isn't Sunday school. This is reality. And they say, hey, I know. We need to get real with this, with this problem. James called these folks double-minded. It's a very interesting word in the Greek. As a matter of fact, it's believed that this is the first emergence of that word in the Greek language. Double-minded. You know what it means? It means two souls. Two souls. That's what it means. Split in half. And it speaks of somebody who's vacillating, you know, going back and forth, going back and forth. Kind of like a a spiritual schizophrenic. James 4, James associates being double-minded with sin. Look at James 4, 8. James says, draw near to God. 
He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The double-minded person tries to serve two gods by attempting to have faith in God, but is bound to the world's wisdoms and the world's lore and the world's ways. The world gets a hold of this person. Frustration rather than faith becomes the characteristic. Of this type of person, James states, for let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded in all his ways. Elijah the prophet saw this. If you go to first, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Kings 18, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah, right up on Mount Carmel, right as he's about to engage the prophets of Baal, cries out to Israel and says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? There it is. Split. What was happening in Israel? Oh, we're Israel, but we're also going to worship Baal. You know, let's hedge our bets here. We have Jehovah on one side. We have Baal. Wouldn't it be cool if we can bring them together? You know the world's doing that today, right? It's doing that today. And Elijah issues a command to Israel. If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And this is the call that goes out to many today. I think about that in light of what the writer of Hebrews said. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Remember two things. Remember that biblical faith engages the mind, harnesses the will, and is revealed in holding to God and His promises. That's biblical faith. Before the service, Michael Gray and I were talking, and Michael Gray reminded me of something. He said, you know, he goes, I always think about what you always said, your friend Dan Garlick said to you before he died. He said, finish well. Finish well. Finish well. My father on his deathbed told me, be faithful. For on that great day, you'll be judged by faithfulness to the Lord. At the onset of the study, I pointed out in the epistle, James is rooted in very practical Christianity. And since the start of this epistle of James, we've discussed some really valuable points. And just to recap some of them, in verse 2, we're reminded to consider it joy when we encounter trials. Why should we consider it joy? Because we know that our God is working in us and through us. In verse 3, he tells us that trials produce spiritual endurance. In verse 4, he tells us that spiritual endurance produces godly perfection, sanctification. In verse 4 again, godly perfection produces a godly perspective in the wisdom that is revealed by God. In verse 5, wisdom in trials is available to the one who asks of God in faith. 
God will provide wisdom in abundance and will not hold back. In verse 6, we're reminded that if we're going to ask of God, we're going to ask in faith, trusting in the person and the character of God. And in verses 7 and 8, we're reminded that if we ask in unbelief, with doubt, not to expect anything from God. The words of Jesus Christ in Mark 9.24 should be ringing in our ears. All things are possible to him who believes. The question then becomes, do you believe it in God in your trial? Do you trust in the plan and the purpose and the character of God? Are you double-minded, trusting in the world and attempting to have faith in Christ? We see right here at the onset of this epistle, that will not work. That will not work. So the issue for us is to come to the place, believers, come to that place where we are able to empty ourselves and avail ourselves to Christ and say, Father, I trust you. I trust you implicitly. I think of the great patriarch Job in the midst of his trial when he declared, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He knows the path that I shall take and when he has tried me, I shall come forth pure as gold. Job 23.10 I think of the Apostle Paul. What shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? And the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8 searches the entire creation. Shall height, shall width, shall depth. So things created, things seen, things unseen. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And what is his conclusion? For I am convinced that nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.